Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keen. Today on the show, Matt Klein calls up economist Stephanie Kelton. Now, Stephanie is a professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University in New York, and she recently served as economic advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders during his 2016 campaign for president. And in this week's episode, she explains how government budgets work and what large-scale student debt forgiveness might do to the U.S. economy. Here it is. Stephanie Kelton, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Matt. So I've been reading reports recently that say that the federal budget deficit in the United States could end up being over $2 trillion by 2027. How should we think about this? Well, I'll tell you how I think about it. I know there are a lot of people who are worried that this is, you know, fiscal stimulus where the economy least needs it. In fact, some people are arguing that what we really should be doing is is exactly the opposite. That is not running budget deficits, but in fact, trying to achieve a balanced budget or even a surplus. I know Paul Krugman in a column recently said something like this. It's a time we should be paying down debt, not adding to deficits over time. So the concern, I think, from most of the people who are looking at these projected deficits is that the economy is already too close to full employment. Perhaps we're already there. Uh, The output gap is closed. The economy can't handle any additional strain. So aggregate demand, uh, if it increases as a result of the tax cuts and the $300 or so in uh, new spending, maybe some additional infrastructure, it's just too much demand. And uh, it's going to show up in the form of inflation. It's going to encourage the Fed to move more aggressively in the tightening cycle. So interest rates will go up faster than they otherwise would. Perhaps a variety of bad things are going to happen as a result of either the tightening cycle, maybe we get pushed into a recession, or we end up with, you know, an inflation problem. To the extent that you think that the economy is too close to full employment and can't accommodate the additional demand, then it's legitimate to worry about this much additional stimulus in the economy today. I think I tend to fall more in the category that there is probably more room to absorb additional demand that you might, instead of getting the crowding out effects that economists often talk about with budget deficits pushing up interest rates and crowding out private investment, maybe you would get some crowding in instead. And so, you know, public spending that boosts demand might encourage businesses to do what they haven't been doing much of over the course of the recovery, which is investing in new plants and equipment, right? New capital expenditure. So I think it's an interesting experiment. I don't have really strong feelings about the inflation risk that I think a lot of my fellow economists have, but that's the way I'm thinking about it. So let's just unpack this and and break it down and make it a little simpler for people who aren't as 
quite in, in tune with these debates as, as you are. The deficit that people are talking about, whether it actually happens, unfolds this way or not, it's the difference between how much the government taxes and how much it spends. And to support that difference, it sells bonds to the public. My question for you in, in general is just, you know, how does that process interact with the economy? Obviously, there are a lot of sort of countervailing forces you can look at, but at a very basic level, why do governments do this? And how does it affect the economy before we get into whether, you know, it's calibrated so the $2 trillion is the right number, either too big or too small? You know, sometimes people treat government budgets like a household budget, right? The, the idea that you have some fixed amount of money to work with, and you budget knowing what your income is going to be and that it's very easy to control your spending and avoid spending more than your income. You just put yourself on a budget, you make decisions, and everything is discretionary. It's all under your control. But that's not how it works with the federal government's budget. There are so many different things that the federal government does that are beyond its control. So there are, we call them automatic stabilizers, there are programs that people qualify for automatically because they're poor. They meet certain income guidelines. They become unemployed, and they qualify for unemployment compensation and food stamps. I could go on and on, right? And so there is a certain amount of spending that takes place that is out of the government's discretionary control. And sometimes what happens is that the economy gets very weak, and we saw that during the Great Recession. You know, at one time we had 800,000 Americans losing their jobs monthly. All kinds of spending to support the unemployed starts happening automatically. At the same time, people who lose their jobs have no income, and suddenly income taxes fall off a cliff because people without income don't have to pay income taxes. And so government is collecting less in the form of taxes, so there's lower revenue, and at the same time, they're spending more to support the weak economy, the unemployed. And so budget deficits tend to explode, as they did during the Great Recession. And it's not because of any willful decision that the federal government made to go out and spend more or, you know, choose to collect less in taxes. It happens quite independent of what the government might otherwise like to see happening. So... Sometimes budget deficits happen just because it's a reflection of what's happening in the real economy. So go back to the Clinton years, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, we had an economy that many economists referred to as the Goldilocks economy. Budget deficits disappeared. And in fact, the government's budget moved into surplus. And you can argue that the surplus was the result of a very buoyant economy. Lots of people working, incomes increasing, tax revenues are, are pouring in, and spending to support the unemployed drops significantly because you have a full employment economy. So the first part of the answer is that the government's budget outcome, whether it's in surplus or deficit, is in a real sense, a reflection of what's happening in the real economy. Now, there are also ways for the government to do things that will increase the size of the deficit on purpose. Like they take willful action and they do things that they know will add to deficits. For example, the recent tax cuts that the Republicans just passed. They did this knowing that the expectation is that it will add something like 1.5 trillion, you said maybe up to 2 trillion to deficits over the next 10 years. 
So, you know, war spending, there are things that, that governments can choose to do that will drive up deficits. But there are also things that are beyond the government's control. So right now, whenever there is an expectation that the government is going to run a budget deficit, that is, that the government is going to spend more than it collects in taxes in some period of time, under current law, the government is required to borrow, which is to add to the national debt, right, to issue treasuries, and that's government borrowing, right? And it happens when the government is engaged in deficit spending. So a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is somehow a dangerous thing for the government to be doing. Maybe, you know, you, you'll get to the point where you're running a deficit and you have to sell bonds, you have to borrow, and nobody will want to lend to you. Right, and, and there will be some sort of a, a refusal on the part of financial markets to allow the government to continue running budget deficits unless they're compensated for what they perceive to be higher risk. So they'll demand higher rates of interest. They, oh, I'm very worried about you know this fiscal behavior. I I'm I'm going to agree to buy these bonds, but only at a higher rate of interest. And then they worry about things spiraling out of control as borrowing costs begin to increase and more of the government spending is going to pay interest on the debt and that sort of thing. But the answer to the question, why does the government borrow, is simply because under current law it's required to do so. And you could ask, well, what if it decided not to do that? Now, that's an interesting kind of thought experiment because Congress could simply decide that it's not going to issue treasuries when it runs budget deficits. That if it spends 100 let's say, billion into the economy, and it's only expected to tax $90 billion back out, so that it's running a budget deficit of $10 billion. they're not going to swap that $10 billion for bonds, but they're just going to let the $10 billion in cash fit in the economy somewhere. So what is the argument against doing that sort of thing? Well, the, the, most of the time what you would hear is, uh, oh, my God, Zimbabwe, right? Because that sounds to people like what you're saying is that the government can just print the money, that you can spend more into the economy and just leave the cash there without draining it. I would say draining it back out, without swapping the dollars out and replacing them with bonds. And people would often worry that that would somehow be more inflationary than the way that it's currently done. Because, you know, the way it's currently done, you, you spend 100 in, tax 90 out, and instead of leaving that $10 billion in someone's hands that they might go out and spend, you take the $10 billion in cash out and you replace it with a treasury bond, let's say. And people believe that um, because you can't go to the local grocery store or the shopping mall with your treasury bonds and, and spend them, that it somehow helps to restrain inflationary pressures. You don't sound like you quite believe that argument. Is that a fair characterization or, or what? Yeah, I'm... I'm I think so. I mean, you know, the the decision to use treasury bonds to um, to coordinate the government's fiscal policy, the spending and taxing, is really something that made more sense when the U.S. was on a gold standard than it does today, where the U.S. dollar is not tethered to gold or to any other, you know, resource or basket of other currencies or anything. But there was a time when it made sense to think of using bond sales to coordinate fiscal operations because it was a way to allow the, the central bank to hit its interest rate targets 
the simple way to say this is that the government could simply dispense with the borrowing, stop issuing treasuries altogether, and just let the Fed hit the interest rate target itself by doing what it's doing today, which is paying interest on what are called excess reserve balances or reserve balances. And so you wouldn't need the bond sales to drain the reserves to hit the interest rate target. You just let the Fed directly hit its interest rate target by paying interest on overnight reserves. I guess another interesting counterpoint as well is that nowadays, treasury bonds, while you can't literally use them to go to the grocery store, in many ways, they do have a lot of money-like properties and can be swapped into money very easily. So I guess it sort of makes me wonder how much of a sterilizer they really are. Yeah, we've, I've written about this, uh, I think, actually, in the Financial Times uh, Alphaville blog. I did a piece with a colleague of mine from my prior university uh, where we went in painstaking detail through the balance sheet operations about how, you know, so-called helicopter money, just doing directly financing government spending without the bond sales, is no different economically speaking, has no different economic impact than the way we're doing it now, which involves borrowing. So we've laid that out, but it's a, it's a pretty weedy kind of a analysis. And Paul Krugman's written about this too, about how there's no difference between just printing money and borrowing uh, in certain circumstances. So this leads to, I think, a natural next question, which is what does interest rates actually do to the economy? Because it sounds like you know, there's a real kind of clear impact we can talk about in terms of, of the budget balance, but in the interest rates, it's a lot more difficult to see the direct linkage. And how do you see that playing out? Oh, it's such a good question. And it is such an important question. And the, the simple truth, I think, is that economists simply do not know. There are all kinds of models and theories about how we should think about the role of interest rates and how they matter in the economy. The truth is that I've not seen anyone uh, offer a robust answer that, you know, kind of holds through time. You know, the, the simplest way people think about it is that uh, when the Fed raises interest rates, it slows the economy down because the price of money goes up and it automatically discourages both consumers and businesses from borrowing money and spending it into the economy. So if interest rates go up, people are less likely to buy a home or buy a car or borrow money to pay for a new computer or whatever the case may be. And likewise, when interest rates go up, businesses find it less profitable to borrow money and invest in new plants and equipment to build out their factories, to replace old machines with new machines. And so there's, there's an assumption that there's a, an inverse relationship, a negative correlation between interest rates and the demand for credit. And so that if the Fed wants to slow the economy down, it just turns the dial to the right, right? Raises interest rates. And if the Fed wants to speed the economy up, it turns the dial to the left and lower interest rates automatically. It's kind of like a Pavlovian thing. You lower interest rates and it's a stimulus. And the response is that people go out and borrow more money and spend more money because the, the stimulus, the incentive is there. And yet that's not reliably so. You know, there are periods in, in the U.S. history where central bank tightening interest rates does not discourage people from borrowing and spending through 
like let's say um, the 80s during the savings and loan crisis, you can have people as long as they're sufficiently optimistic and they think, well, okay, interest rates are going from 5% to 7%, but I still believe that I can borrow money at 7% and invest it and turn a profit. And so I'm borrowing more money. And then rates go from 7 to 9 You say, I still think I can make money borrowing at 9% and it will be profitable. And so it's, it's not as easy to say that just, you know, raising interest rates will reliably discourage spending. And then, of course, during the Great Recession, what did the Fed do? It cut interest rates aggressively all the way to zero. And the expectation was that if you made money cheap enough, that this would bring about a swift recovery in the economy because people would begin borrowing again and spending. And, you know, quite the opposite happened. I mean, if people are trying to pay down debt and they're not interested in taking on more debt so that they can spend more because the appetite is not there. People are trying to delever, we say, right, to improve their balance sheet. Then it doesn't matter how attractive you make things look to the consumer or to business firms. If they're trying to pay down debt or they don't think that the investment will be profitable because firms are watching all these people lose their jobs and they don't see the demand. So where am I going to get the customers? If I, I can borrow at near zero, but what am I going to do with the new factory? What am I going to produce with the new machines? There are no customers at the end of the day, right? I don't think this is going to be profitable. So more than just interest rates matter. So speaking of what the Fed did during the aftermath of the Great Recession, in addition to lowering the short-term policy rate to zero, they also created a lot of new bank reserves and used those reserves to buy treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Did that do anything, or was this essentially sort of a uh, swap among assets and liabilities within the government? Yeah, I think the answer is both. It is a swap of one asset for another. So when the Fed was doing the quantitative easing, and let's say during QE3, the third round of quantitative easing, the Fed was buying $85 billion a month a combination of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, right? And how do they pay for those financial assets they're buying? Well, they paid by crediting banks' reserve accounts. So they created bank reserves, and that's how they paid. But what they did was remove interest-bearing assets, mortgage-backed securities and U.S. government bonds, from the balance sheet of the private sector, move those assets onto the central bank's balance sheet, and replace them with bank reserves that paid next to nothing, right? So it was an asset swap, but it wasn't just an asset swap. It was an asset swap that included kind of a giant sucking sound, which was all of the interest income, tens of billions of dollars in interest income that would have otherwise been earned by the private sector that was siphoned off by the central bank, accumulated on the central bank's balance sheet, and then got turned over to the Treasury. So one of the things that you know we were talking about during QE is that everybody was viewing QE as just pure stimulus. There were people were talking about helicopter Ben and the the visuals and the cartoons were of you know the helicopter flying up, raining dollars down on the economy. A lot of people described QE as the government or the central bank just pushing money into the economy. But that's not what QE did. It didn't push money into the economy. It pushed money onto the balance sheet of financial institutions, right, that had sold these. So then the question is, well, what else did QE do? Well, it 
boosted asset prices. And so there were distributional consequences to QE, which is to say that if you are someone who owned, you know, uh, financial assets, treasuries being just one example, but, you know, equities, commodities, whatever, asset prices went up. So one of the effects of QE, and it was by design. I mean, Janet Yellen used to talk about what do we want to see with QE? What are we trying to do? And in part, she said, what we're trying to do is to generate a wealth effect. And Bernanke talked about this before um, Yellen came in. Hopefully, he said, we'll see asset prices in a variety of different classes moving up and through a wealth effect. People will feel wealthier because the value of the assets they own is going up. And we hope that in response, they will spend more. And that's where you get the boost to the economy. So I think QE did a lot of things, um, not all of them, you know, the, the pure stimulus that a lot of people thought QE was all about. It was kind of like one foot on the brake that with all the draining of the interest income and maybe one foot on the gas by juicing asset prices with distributional consequences and probably, you know, some benefit to the economy. I, I don't dispute that at all. So, so far we've been talking about how the federal budget works and, and misconceptions about that and, and the arguments for why either the federal government should or should not issue bonds to fund its spending above taxation. How does this differ from the finances of state and local governments in the United States? Yeah, in very important ways. So the federal government is different from the state of Kansas or the state of you know, Texas or any other state in a really fundamental way, and that is the states themselves are constrained in terms of what they can do with their budget because they really do need to collect revenue or be able to access the markets in order to borrow to finance their spending. So we'll sometimes say states are revenue constrained. They need the tax revenue and they can't continue to run budget deficits. Most states are required by law to balance their budgets, and they can really get into financial trouble if they have budget deficits and they're adding to their debt and interest rates go up and all of a sudden, you know, they run into a legitimate crisis. Orange County got into trouble. The city of Detroit got into trouble. You know, you see this happen in states and municipalities, but it doesn't happen with the federal government. And the reason that it doesn't happen with the federal government in a country like the U.S. is that the federal government is in debt in U.S. dollars. So what the government owes is its own currency. So you worry about the U.S. government's ability to make dollar payments in the future. I would say no, because there's no way that the U.S. government is going to run out of its own currency. So the U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government, and it can't come from anywhere else. You know, the St. Louis Fed says in, in these terms, they say the federal government has a monopoly on the creation of the dollar. So they're the monopoly issuer of the currency, whereas the state of Kansas or Detroit or Puerto Rico, they're just um, users of the currency. They don't issue the currency. They're revenue constrained in a way that the federal government is not, which is why you know, you see a natural disaster happen in a state, hurricanes, for example, and the governors get on the phone after one of these disasters hits. They don't call the governor 
in Michigan or Ohio and say, you know, we've got some trouble here. Uh, we're going to need we're going to need some relief. Can you send over some money to help us with, you know, hurricane disaster relief? Of course they don't do that. Where do they call? They call the federal government. Why? Because that's where the money comes from. And they all know it. They know that the federal government has a different relationship with the U.S. dollar, that the dollar comes from the U.S. government. It can't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come from China. The government can never run out of its own currency because it has granted unto itself the exclusive right to create the U.S. dollar. You and I can't do it. If we do, it's called counterfeiting, and we get in big trouble. But the federal government creates the U.S. dollar, and therefore it can never run into a situation where there are payments coming due in U.S. dollars and the government doesn't have the money to make good on the payment. It's also why it's frustrating to hear people talk about the, the Republican tax cuts and say, this is going to be a disaster for the federal government's finances. Didn't they learn anything from Kansas? So they look at the experiment. And, you know, I, I live in New York now, but I've only been here for six months or so, and I moved here from the state of Kansas. So I lived the uh, Brownback experiment in Kansas. And Kansas aggressively cut taxes on the argument that it was going to draw so many jobs to the state, boost growth so much that revenues were going to explode and the coffers would be full, right? This supply-side argument, was, this is exactly the way Governor Brownback argued it. And precisely the opposite happened, right? The, the jobs did not come pouring in. The revenues went down, not up. And Kansas ended up with a real budget crisis on its hands. And people look at that and say, you see, the same thing is going to happen here to the federal government because of what the Republicans have done. We're going to end up with a fiscal crisis that's going to cause, you know, budget problems and bankruptcy or whatever, because Kansas showed us that that's what happens. And what they're missing is the fundamental difference between you know, being a state that uses the currency and being the federal government that issues it. So bringing us back actually to the, the opening question, the constraint then isn't that the federal government can run out of dollars. The potential issue is that in an effort not to run out of dollars, they end up creating more than are needed and essentially devaluing them. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? It could. Yeah, it could. I mean, you know, the the consensus in Washington is usually that any deficit is too big. And everybody believes that if you have a deficit, it should probably be smaller than it is. But nobody ever argues that deficits can also be too small. So yes, if you run budget deficits that exceed the capacity of the economy to keep up with any demand that's being created, stimulus from the deficits, then the, the result is inflation. I remember when I was serving on the um, Senate Budget Committee, I remember listening to the, the chairman of the committee, Senator Enzi from Wyoming. And Senator Enzi, whenever he talked about a budget deficit, he always said the government's deficit is evidence of overspending. That's how he defined the deficit, evidence of overspending. And I would sit behind you know, the chairman and I would just be kind of shaking my head because, of course, economists know that evidence of overspending is inflation. That's the evidence of overspending. It's not that the government etches a number onto its balance sheet that happens to have a negative sign in front of it. So, you know, there's a budget deficit. That's not evidence of overspending. If, 
if you have overspending, you get inflation. And as you said, that then impacting the, the value of the currency. Related to that, the United States is probably the, the country best suited to embracing larger deficits or bigger deficits than what many people think are acceptable because it's a large, diversified economy. It's not particularly reliant on imports. Is this kind of framework not necessarily as applicable to other countries that maybe are much more trade dependent, maybe would have a problem with with managing their exchange rate and that that sort of a thing? How how does this apply to places that are smaller, you know, like like a New Zealand or something? Well, okay. So what I usually say is that the United States government can afford to buy whatever is for sale in U.S. dollars. That's the that's the upper bound. Okay, so that is the limit to what the federal government in the United States can do with its with its power of the purse. It can afford to buy whatever's for sale in U.S. dollars, which means it can maintain full employment domestically. It can always ensure that it it does a fiscal adjustment that it either cuts taxes or increases its spending or a combination of the two to keep the economy at full employment. Can other countries also do that? Can a small open economy exercise the same sort of authority with its fiscal space? And my answer is yes. You know, if New Zealand decides to implement a program that says we're going to guarantee full employment domestically, and the way that we're going to achieve that is we're going to agree to hire anybody who wants to work but can't find work elsewhere in the economy, and we will hire them and pay them with our own currency, can they afford to do that? And the answer is yes. Are there other differences for some countries that aren't as large as the U.S., where trade is a bigger share of the total economy? Yeah, sure, there would be some other differences. I guess the other area, and and we touched on this in the the conversation about state and local finances, but it's something that, it's it's an area that seems particularly relevant here, is the case of the euro area, where it seems to me that there are no currency issuers, only 20 currency users, and that doesn't seem to have worked out very well for them so far. How would, how would you assess that? Yeah. Well, you know, this is something that I was working on while I was writing my doctoral dissertation, and uh, this was just prior to the launching of the euro. So I was writing in the like 1997-98 kind of period, and um, there were a few people at the time, not a lot, but there were a few economists who were saying that they had concerns about the design of the new monetary system that was going to be implemented starting January 1st of 1999 with the introduction of the euro. And they said, look, this is not the way it's normally done. Normally, if you're going to have a currency union, like we have in the U.S., 50 states that all use the U.S. dollar, then it's one-size-fits-all monetary policy. You have the central bank setting interest rate policy for the entire country, but you also have fiscal policy at the supranational level. We don't, you know, leave fiscal policy to the individual states. We also have, you know, monetary and fiscal policy for the U.S. as a whole. Well, what the countries in, in the Eurozone did was to divorce the fiscal and the monetary, to give authority to the new European Central Bank and say, you run the monetary policy for all of the countries who join the currency union, but you keep responsibility for your own fiscal policy at the national level. And, you know, as I said, there weren't a lot of economists that were concerned about the divorcing of the currency 
from the fiscal policy, but there were some, and one of them was influential in my training, and that was Wynn Godley, who was on my doctoral dissertation committee. And, and Wynn wrote very early on brilliant critiques of kind of the way that this thing was being designed. You know, you have all of these countries who went from controlling their own currencies. Like, take, take Italy, for example. You go back to 1995, and Italy had a debt-to-GDP ratio of right around 120%. No debt crisis. 1995, Italy had its own currency, had the lira. And so the Italian government never had any difficulty making payments, right, servicing the debt, because all they had to do was pay lira. And where did the lira come from? It came from the Italian government. It couldn't come from anywhere else. Fast forward to 2010, Italy has a debt-to-GDP ratio of 120%, but it has a debt crisis. And what's different? It's the same debt load as before. What's different is the debt is all denominated in euro now, and the Italian government can't create the euro. Okay, so basically these countries turned themselves into the U.S. states. So Italy became more like Idaho, and Portugal became more like Pennsylvania, and you see where I'm going with the alliteration here, but giving up their sovereign currency and agreeing to borrow in a currency that they don't control put them at risk in ways that countries like the U.S. or Japan or the U.K. simply don't don't face that risk of default. Changing gears a little bit, one of the things that, that you were doing a couple of years ago that was rather interesting was that you were chief economic advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders when he was running for president. What was that like? And, and what were some of the big kind of economic policy contributions that you brought there that were kind of different from the perspective I think a lot of other economists might have about in particular fiscal policy? Oh, what was it like? Well, it was, it was exhilarating. I mean, um, my only real professional experience has been in academia. And so to, to enter the fear where policy is actually made instead of talking about it kind of more theoretically to be involved in, you know, writing legislation and thinking about how to propose legislation, how to design a program, um, everything from, you know, the tax policy to his College for All Act or the minimum wage uh, proposal. You know, he was the, the one first really to come out with legislation to call for a $15 an hour minimum wage. And so, you know, it was exciting to be part of that because he is a big thinker and he does not, he does not look for ways to tinker around at the edges when he sees what he perceives to be a real problem, income inequality or wage stagnation or millions of young people who are finding it more and more difficult to get the education that they desire. He he looks for really bold ways to tackle problems, and that was exciting to be part of. Speaking of policy, you and, and some colleagues recently came out with a paper about the macroeconomic implications of canceling student debt. If I read it correctly, you estimate that canceling all debt would boost the economy by about half percent of GDP per year, and that this would only come at the cost of an increase in the overall government budget deficit of about a quarter of a percent of GDP each year. So I guess my first question is, how does this growth effect compare to other kinds of fiscal interventions you can imagine of a similar size, where you get basically twice as much of a growth benefit as you do in sort of a government deficit increase? 
Well, it, it depends what the other is, right? So we one of the things we did was say, well, we just got the Republicans just passed the tax cuts that are estimated to add $1.5 trillion. So you could sort of loosely say that their tax cuts cost $1.5 trillion and, and just think kind of it's a little bit loose, but close enough. There's $1.4 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. So what if instead of doing the tax cuts, what if we had done this instead? And so one way that you can compare is just to say, which one grows the economy more? And, you know, we run the macro models and our simulations suggest that you get essentially bigger bang for the buck with student debt cancellation. You get more real GDP growth, you get higher employment, and you add less to the deficit and over time the national debt than you do with the recent tax cuts. So it would be pretty straightforward to just do that side-by-side -side comparison and say this would have been better stimulus for the economy. But you could also say, well, does that mean that it's the best stimulus, the best way to use that fiscal space that you have available? So you might say, well, what, what if we had done instead of $1.4 in student debt cancellation, what would $1.4 trillion of new infrastructure investment look like? We, we didn't model that, but there's a good chance that you get even better results with infrastructure investment. And so you'd have to run an exercise where you had a menu of things you'd love to be able to do, college for all, Medicare for all, whatever it is, and then see, you know, what is the best use of your fiscal space? Sure. And one of the things that was interesting about the, the simulations that you ran is some of them generate, there's a bit of a range of results in particular. I mean, if, if I remember reading correctly, there are basically four different basic tests you ran. Basically, three of them had a very similar growth impact, and one of them had a much, much worse one and actually implying, so this is the Moody's one, and implied a subtraction of growth in sort of the 2022-2026 period. And it's based on this idea of how the Federal Reserve would respond. Can you give us some more of a sense of, of how that works and, and how plausible that result is? First of all, that's awesome because I've done a lot of interviews uh, on this report since we released it. You are the first person to pick up on that. So I'm, I'm glad that I get to answer this question because so far nobody else has, has raised this point. Yeah, so we did a bunch of different simulations. You're right, we did four using two different models. So we worked with Mark Zandi and some of his staff over at Moody's. And then we used another macro model that's called the fail model. And so we wanted to make sure that our findings were robust. So we picked two different macro models. And then we said, well, let's have the model first tell us what things will look like if we cancel the student loan debt and the Fed behaves the way the model thinks the Fed will behave. But then let's also have the model tell us what happens if we cancel the student loan debt and the Fed behaves differently. And so what we basically said was, that the Fed is more patient, that we just suppress the Fed's reaction function. So it's not raising rates to counteract any benefit from the debt cancellation. And you're right. In three of the four scenarios, the results track very closely. And in the fourth scenario, the first five years of the simulation track very closely. And then something squirrely happens in the out years with the Moody's simulation and it has to do with the way that the Moody's model treats the interest rate. And so your earlier question when we first got started about how interest rates matter, 
And I said, well, that's a great question, and economists don't really ha have a precise answer. There's no robust finding on that. So the Moody's model assumes that there is, and that the Fed's tightening, that the Fed tightens, not aggressively, but more aggressively than you would think they would, given that there's virtually no inflationary effect. So somehow, in the absence of uh, a heightened inflation problem, the Moody's model says, well, the Fed is going to tighten more aggressively. And because the Fed is tightening more aggressively, you get significant crowding out effects. And that undermines the, the stimulus effects of the cancellation. So that's what's going on in the out years there. There is something puzzling, we think, on our end about how Moody's has built their model with the sensitivity to interest rates, given that there's no inflation. That's the part that, that we don't quite understand. Why would the Fed tighten so much if it's not reacting to inflationary pressure, which by its own model doesn't happen. Well, I suppose one could mischievously say that's what they've been doing the past few years regardless, but fair point. The other thing, and, and this is trawling through the appendix, you talk about two different ways of measuring the fiscal cost, if you will, of the student debt forgiveness plan. And I'd, I'd love to get some clarity on, on what these differences are and where they come from. So one you say is the simulation deficit impact which is about 0.7% of GDP per year. And then you have deficit impact relative to current levels, which is about half that. Can you explain what these two different measures are and, and what caused the difference and which one is more relevant for a conversation about public policy? Yeah, the last one is more relevant. And the reason is we are when we talk about canceling $1.4 trillion, 90% uh, roughly of that total is already on the government's balance sheet. It's student loan debt that's held by the Department of Ed. And the way that the Department of Ed made those loans in the first place, the student loans, is Treasury issued bonds and then credited the Department of Ed's account with the money that the Department of Ed could then use to go out and make loans. So part of the United States' outstanding national debt already includes the borrowing to finance the student loan debt. So in other words, the stock of so, debt wouldn't be increasing by, you'd just be losing assets. Right, right. So what, what would happen if, if we just said, okay, everybody who has student loan debt today that owes, owes repayment to the Department of Ed, if they pay it all back, all the principal and all the interest, then what's supposed to happen is that is supposed to then retire that portion of the national debt that was issued, right, to fund the loans in the first place. So the principal is there. The principal is already in the national debt. The interest is what you're giving up. You're not getting the interest back. So that part adds to the national debt. The rest just gets rolled over. That's the part that matters, right? You're not increasing the national debt one for one, principal and interest, because the principal part's already there on 90% of the outstanding student loan debt. So just to clarify, the bigger number that you have, this roughly sort of 0.7% of GDP, that is essentially the cost that losing out on the assets, but doesn't reflect the actual growth in the debt outstanding. Is that the right way of phrasing it? So the bigger number is generated from these models. And the models don't know the institutional like backstory on the fact that the national debt, part of it, already represents 
loans that were undertaken to fund student loan borrowing. When you run the Moody's model, for example, it assumes that that cancellation adds to the deficit and that every dollar added to the deficit requires additional borrowing. And so it generates those results automatically. What we're saying is actually you're ending, you just end up rolling over debt, not issuing new debt. I guess another way of putting it is you're missing out on the interest income, but the principal essentially has already manifested itself in, in the debt outstanding. When you, you said that perfectly. The, the, the privately held is different, right. right? So about 300 and some billion of the 1.4 trillion is privately held debt. And so what we did is say, well, let's assume the government just takes over the payments on those. So that's adding to the deficit. That requires new borrowing. So, yeah, we're just talking about that 90% that is already on the government's books and the principal portion of that. Got it. What yeah. You have an interesting discussion in the middle of the paper about the distribution of student debt and the distributional impact of forgiving student debt. There's a pretty common narrative, and I, I confess I find it relatively plausible, that the absolute dollar amount of debt is mostly concentrated among people of relatively – either they have high incomes or they're going to be having high incomes, people who went to medical school and law school and MBAs and things like that. And so even if it's fair to say that many student borrowers are very indebted relative to their income – and there are a lot of people who would benefit, that if you were to forgive all student debt, a lot of the actual dollar gains would end up going to a relatively small group of people who are relatively well off. How, how do you sort of assess that? Okay, well, I would like to just have the record reflect that writing this paper, we didn't write it as a policy proposal. We wrote it as a sort of a hypothetical, what would happen if, sort of a neutral analysis. But, but okay, so what people will often say is that like half of all outstanding student loan debt, 40-some percent or whatever, was taken out by people who borrowed for advanced degrees. So they went to law school or they went to med school or they got an MBA or something. And this is what you're saying, right? That these people um, have more debt because it costs more to go to med school or law school or get an MBA, but they're going to end up with high paying jobs as a result. And so they're well equipped to have the income to pay the debt and that forgiving all of the outstanding debt somehow disproportionately benefits this group. And therefore, people look at it as somehow regressive, like it's a regressive debt cancellation scheme. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to quote this exactly because I didn't read the paper, but I did read a summary of the findings just earlier this week. Uh, maybe you saw it and might even be able to help me out, but it's a new report from Brookings that looks at this exact question. People who you know, have a lot of student loan debt, but they have a lot of student loan debt because they've got the MBAs and the other advanced degrees. And those individuals who graduated in 2009 with 50, 60, you know, thousand dollars in student loan debt, graduated in 2009, today, on average, like 50% of them have not paid back any of the outstanding student loan debt. They're not paying it down. So, it's a sort of raising concerns about the very argument that you just made, that somehow these people did well. They got these advanced degrees, and then they got jobs that pay well, and they're able to, to handle the debt. And in fact, you know, the Brookings study says half of them haven't even made a dent in uh, the debt repayment, in part because the labor market hasn't been offering the kind of employment opportunities that have the higher incomes that maybe these individuals expected when they started graduate school 
they graduated in 2009. They're coming out right in the midst of the Great Recession. You know, they didn't get the kinds of jobs and the income that's allowing them to pay it back. And it's also true that minorities and, and women are more reliant than whites and males when it comes to student loan debt. So, you know, you read the paper, you see that we have an argument here that makes a, a very strong case that, in fact, um, the very population that stands to benefit the most from the student loan cancellation are people who don't have a large amount of debt, but who are disproportionately reliant on debt in order to get an education. Stephanie Kelton, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the end of this week's conversation. Let us know what you think. You can send us an email or voice note to alphachat at ft.com. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I say it every week, but it really helps people find out about us. Thanks to Matt and to Stephanie, and thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you here next week for a brand new episode of Alpha Chat.